Welcome to the Fundraising Leadership Podcast, where we engage in lively and thoughtful conversations about personal development and leadership for professionals in the nonprofit world. I'm David Langiuli, and I'm here with my special partner and friend, Michelle Malloy Dillon. Hey, Michelle. Hey, David. Good to have you here today. We're going to have a great conversation. We have a a special guest with us today, Christian Mespier. I did my best. Uh, Christian has a new book out called Look, and the subtitle, which I'm going to pull up here because I don't memorize anything these days. I've got it. How to pay attention in a distracted world. Are you distracted, David? Well, I was scrolling up on this like super article that uh, Christian gave us for the blog. So all you listeners out there, you'll you'll be getting a, an email with a link to the, uh, a sample from the book. And uh, yeah, I didn't have it handy. So thanks for the rescue, uh, Michelle. Let me let me in my own inimitable dyslexic way in, introduce Christian. He is the founder of Red Associates, a strategy consulting company based in human sciences and employing anthropologists, sociologists, art historians, and philosophers. Christian studied philosophy and political science in Copenhagen and London. He lives in New York City. And in his new book, Look, he sets out the key observational skills needed to show how we can capture our ability to pay attention. I hope you all are paying attention to every word that I'm saying right now. <laughs> Drawing from philosophy, science, and the visual arts and his own life, he offers both practical insights and a range of tools for experimenting and experiencing the world with greater richness and texture. The results the result is a dynamic approach to rethinking observation that helps all of us see with more empathy, accuracy, and connection. Welcome, Christian. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, well, I have to say, empathy, compassion, um, connection, these are things that Michelle and I care a lot about. So what are you noticing in the culture that um, maybe is missing? Um, well, many things, but, um, but the main thing that made me write this book was abstraction. So mm. feel, feeling that you feeling like you live an abstracted life or an abstract life far away mm from uh, what matters was something I saw in my students. So I, I've been teaching this class on attention and observation for a decade and um, at the new school in Manhattan. And I could see the students sort of change over time and I could see them st starting to complain about having an abstract, leading an abstract mm -hmm. life. So a life where you don't feel connected to where you live or to the people around you. Um, and it's not so strange because we've been increasingly leading lives that are mediated. So right now, for instance, we're looking through screens to talk to each other 
which is quite different from being in the same room together. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, if you if you lead a life that's informed by abstracted ideas rather than concrete, direct relationships to the world, then you become miserable. And I could see that in my students. Mm-hmm. So what is missing are the opposite of paying attention and the opposite of uh, having a connection, an empathetic connection to the world is abstraction. And it concerns me that, you know, abstraction is probably almost always the enemy. Well, sure. If I, if you're an abstraction, I can treat you like an object and do anything I want to you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And if the street you live in is just another street and not your street, uh, if, if the relationships to the uh, people you work with are only through uh, transactional interactions on a video call, then then you won't have a direct relationship to each other and you end up um, getting a quite a poor quality of interaction with each other. Um, so you're right. Well, I love I love that you bring in this uh, word transactional because uh, there are quite a number of fundraisers in the nonprofit world that listen to the podcast. And when I got into fundraising, oh God, you know, maybe 20 years ago or something, um, it was much more relational. Um, I, it's one of the things that drew me to, to fundraising was the relational aspect of it. And if I look back on my life, and I'm going to have Michelle uh, come in on this, um, but I, every step, every change I made in my professional life was closer and closer relationship. So going from um, uh, fundraising, which was very personal, very relational, the way I was taught, the way I did it. And there's still some aspects of fundraising that are very much like that into coaching, which is what now what Michelle and I do. I mean, it's, it's, it's very intimate is the word I'm thinking about. So I appreciate you because there are a lot of fundraising out there that's transactional. And, and I think people are like, they really push that away. They don't, they don't care for that. They're, they're feeling that like, you're just treating me like an object, like a, like a money machine or something, you know, cash machine. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, ATMs basically. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. The, yeah. I, I also I don't think it's very effective. I think deep, slow relationship building is on the you know way more effective in terms of in terms of how much you raise. I've never raised a dime in the nonprofit space, but I would imagine if it works in any way, like the rest of my life, having deep relationships where you care about each other and each other's life and agenda makes it much easier to. Um, have find common grounds where you have different things to chip in with time, mm-hmm. money, experience, you know, and so on. So I, I, I don't think transactional interactions and relationships are very effective when it comes to those things. But yeah. you know way more than I do about that. Well, you know, Christian, oh. when you were talking about the change you've noticed in your students over the last 10 years or so, it makes me sad because there's this feeling of losing out on um, important experiences in life. And in your in your book and in the chapter you've given us to share on our blog, you talk a lot about sort of what is not being said in a space. And in that example of your students, it's like what is not being able to be expressed or what is being 
what is yearning for in that that's not being expressed? Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, uh, uh, most of language is, of course, what is not said. Mm-hmm. Some things are said in meetings or some things are said in relationships, but most of the information is actually what's not said. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and the example, one of the examples in that chapter is about Gillian Ted, the the great Gillian Ted who works at Financial Times and now at Cambridge University. She she says that the way she does journalism uh, is by looking at what people are not saying. And so, so when she covers, say, the financial crisis in 2008, um, which is the example in the book, uh, she looks for what are what's not at the conferences. And one of the things that are not at the conferences are conversations about who's going to pay their rent uh, or their mortgage, their mortgages, which of course was the source of all the misery we ended up in, you know, three, four, five years uh, uh, that basically collapsed our economy for a while, was that that perspective was gone from, yeah. from the news media and from particularly from the financial um institutions it was abstracted yeah yeah Yeah. well i spent 25 years as a professional photographer and the story the true story was always what was happening on the periphery of the room not the actual speaker on the stage exactly what was happening in the shadows and by the door and what was the impact of their words or not on that on that person and on the space and and the but the the good thing is the magical thing really is that we can listen to that. We have a humans have an ability to see what's not in this picture, yes. um, and and what's missing here. And of course, some some are better at that than others. And and Jillian is certainly uh, a, a master. Um, but but she but 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 it's something we can all do, and we can get better at, and you know we can practice. Um, so so silence, she calls it social silences. Um, and it's it's all the things that are not discussed. Um, the the great sociologist Pierre Bourdieu, the French sociologist, he calls it doxa, uh, so d o x a. And doxa is the things that we're not discussing. So if you take the Amer- the American, political world right now, you would think that the main thing you should look at is what blue or red, the blue or the red team are saying to each other. Uh, But he's saying, no, it's actually the things that are not articulated in that Mm -hmm. discussion. Uh, The the groups that are talking um, and are making all the noises agree that they're the ones that are going to talk. What's, What's really important is who's not getting to talk. And mm-hmm. um, and he calls that doxa. I think that's mm-hmm. a b- brilliant way of, of of saying how do you, how do you observe politics? Well, you observe what's not being said, and why that is not being said, and who doesn't have a voice, and why that is the case. So, and you can do that anyway. You can do that in your in your work life. You can see it in a company. You can see it in a hospital. You can see it anywhere really. What is what are the things that are not being articulated, and why? And often there's a good reason. Because it's irrelevant, but sometimes there there's no good reason, and, right. and and somebody should articulate that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, in in the work that we do with teams and groups, it's often the silences or the quiet ones that are actually speaking for something that's present, right. and oftentimes those messages actually might. You know, in in looking at the sort of the echoes in the system of that team or that organization that may have existed, things that might have happened in that organization years before 
even those people who are currently working there now came on board, but these are echoes in the system. And so uncovering those can have really profound consequences for the team, because now we have all the information here, even the stuff that hasn't been talked about or was felt, but we couldn't actually verbalize here. Right. Yeah. Exactly. The, the, um, there's a journalist um, that uh, is in the book as well. Basically, the journalistic trick is they call it SU. And it's the idea is when you when you have a notepad and somebody's talking uh, and or you're interviewing someone, every time you have the inclination to speak, you write down SU, which stands for shut up. Mm-hmm. Um, because it means if you do that and you do it in often enough, people will have to articulate what they wouldn't otherwise have said. That's uh, and, great. and you yeah. so so the trick is basically to be quiet. Uh, and I mm-hmm. and I think good observers have the ability to be quiet. Um so, sorry, the, the sky just opened. So if there's a sound of rain, it's that's because that's because it is. <laughs> the sky it, is reacting to what you're saying. It's just, <laughs> what is yeah, the sky I, trying to tell us? <laughs> it's it's unlikely, but yes, yes. <laughs> Maybe this conversation is opening up. Um And uh, in the coach training that Michelle and I received, the acronym was WAIT. You remember that? Uh, Do you still use that? uh, Yeah. In in the yeah. Why am I talking? talking? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Same thing. Same thing. It's highly is highly efficient technique um, Mm -hmm. to figure out what really is going on by being quiet long enough and waiting long enough. Um, and I think it, it's also a trick, and the, maybe the main trick in the book is to arrest your own um, natural tendency to have opinions about things. Mm-hmm. So well, a big a big problem for the students that I, that I uh, have taught over the years have been that they have a lot of opinions mm-hmm. and that they're taught to have opinions and they're quite effective in terms of articulating those opinions. And they're often weakly held, but strongly, you know, com- communicated. Mm-hmm. And that gets in the way of listening and it gets in the way of learning anything. Yeah. Um, so, so getting rid of your opinions, you can have all the opinions you like, but arresting them, stopping them when you're observing uh, is a is a is a key tool. And maybe the hardest thing is the hardest thing is to see what's really there because yeah. you have this tendency to snap it into a pre-existing idea about how something works. Um, so if you think you know everything, if you if you have strong opinions about homelessness and you and you see homeless people, whether you are on the right or the left or up or down, doesn't really matter. But if you if you have strong opinions about homelessness, whose fault it is and you know so on then you don't really see what's going on you don't see the people there and you learn nothing from seeing yeah. it mm-hmm. so if you see the world through the abstraction of opinion then you get a very weak and uh and sort of pale version of the world so so that that's maybe wait or shut up is also is also well, there's, there's a lot stop there. your own stop your right. own opinions uh, well and yeah. Go ahead. You know, this is the uh, partly this is the uh, a result of the in you know educational industrial complex. The way that the left brain gets conditioned and the right brain. I'm speaking in generalities now. The intuitive mind versus the rational analytical mind. So the the um, 
the educational industrial complex conditions the left brain, judgments, assessments, right, wrong, um, got to have an answer. Um, and the right brain kind of atrophies over time. And that's where intuition lives, creativity lives, um, compassion lives. And so it's not a surprise, as, as I hear you say, you outline in the book that we're becoming, we're not listening, uh, we're not observing. You know, there's something Michelle and I were talking about yesterday, like not knowing. Like, could you imagine saying like, like we were in, in the space of not knowing, like suspending judgment. And even though if you think you know what's going on or you think you know what the cause is, I mean, who says I don't know anymore? I do all the time. And, I know you do. All the time. <laughs> and it's it's refreshing for people. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I've been... I've been a, uh, a kind of strategy consultant for many, many years and on major, major projects. So projects for, um, you know, I say Detroit, Detroit automaker who, if the projects went wrong, would fold, you know, and the lights would be out. And the same with major, you know, major companies working on very important things. And if I'd said, if I had concluded uh, before I actually knew and not been honest about when I didn't know, we could have made terrible, terrible mistakes. Mm -hmm. So when the stakes are high, uh, it, it's even more necessary to be able to say and to be, you know, honest enough, but also confident enough in saying, I, I, I don't know, I'm sorry. Yeah. And they'll, you know, sometimes we'd get pushback and say, we just, you just spent $2 million of our money, you know, doing research about this topic and you're coming back and saying, you don't know. And I said, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Because if I come back and, and sort of invented some, you know, knowingly or not knowingly invented some sort of answer, um, if you really didn't know, then that would have been terrible. Mm -hmm. So, so the, so the, you know, I think I think there's a there's a confidence that's necessary in when you say, you know, frankly, I I I I, can't, I couldn't say. Um, uh, and and if if you take your what you're doing seriously, you have to do it quite a lot because it's rare that you know actually what's going on. Yeah. Um, at some point, you have to make a call, um, but but um, but but it's better to be honest about when you when you're confused or you don't you know, things doesn't add up. Yeah. And there's something in that about suspending self-judgment to have the cur courage to say, I don't know. And the curiosity to sit in the not knowing to discover what else might be here that's useful. Right. That we haven't discovered yet. Right. I mean, at some point you need to make a decision whether you're going to make a car that's electric or with a combustion engine. You know, you either either you can't stop everything, but at some but but until you really know, um, you it's a big call to make, mm -hmm. um, and it, it's a you know in that case it's a it's a it's a break the company kind of call. Um, mm -hmm. So so um, you better be honest with yourself, and then eventually. Um, once you absolutely, when you absolutely have to, you have to work on the information you have and your best judgment, but only then. Yeah. Yeah. This is, I like what you're saying. It, it's, it's, um, 
it's like sensing it's it's like being in the not knowing is like a blank like i'm just pausing there it's just like that blank pause i don't know what words are going to come out of my mouth and that can be very uncomfortable especially when people get paid to know and make decisions <laughs> right like so you know being in the not knowing means okay you know like sometimes it is just very clear sometimes things are very clear uh i, I love the case you give about electric vehicles um whatever it is 10 10 years ago i don't think elon musk knew how things were going to play out for him and in fact they didn't play out very well early on right yeah he couldn't in his wildest dreams have thought what would happen would happen and you know right. it's still a very small phenomenon so mm -hmm. um and but but you're right it's we nobody knows I mean, nobody knows anything that yeah. we can do. Our, we can do the best we can to try to understand something. Um, and you can predict some things, but in general, it's it's uh, predicting the future is very hard. Um, I mean, it's a couple of or other examples of future prediction problems. I mean, if it, if we really were able, if humans were able to, with whatever technology we have, AI technologies and immense data sets and so on, why can't we predict? what the what the inflation rates will be you know next month why is everybody predicting that there will be recession and have been predicting recession for 10 years now yet we still haven't seen it so so it's, predicting the future is very very hard the question is just do you do you accept that it's hard um right and and what do we do to do our best in those situations i think there's a lot of hubris and a lot mm -hmm. of hyperbole around the ability to predict whether the futures of cars are electric or whether the uh, you know the economy will come down in six months. Um, so, well, I think that we could all use a bit more humility about what we know and what we don't know, and um, especially in leadership roles and in some of the work that Michelle and I do when we were trained as coaches, and Michelle now teaches is actually on the faculty of the um, the coaching institute where we got our training. Um, we were trained on suspending, like when we work with clients, we have, I, 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 for me, it was a big deal to actually withhold judgment, not have an opinion, and just ask open-ended questions and, and trust that all the wisdom, at least in that, system of two people resides on the other side of this conversation. Now, every now and then I do have clients that will ask me directly, like, what's your opinion? And I'll say, well, opinions are like belly buttons. Everybody's got one. And then I offer my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Right. But at some point you have to make a judgment call. The question yeah. is just when you do it and and whether you're willing to uh, stop yourself uh, doing that if it's too early. Um, yeah. And it's a matter of what's important here. What am I going to pay attention to here? And um, as coaches, we're trained in uh, 
being aware of what level of listening we're in as we're coaching people. And I hear sort of a connection to this in some of the work you're doing, Christian, where we talk about being in level one is that judgmental, opinionated space. What do I think? What's in it for me? Uh, We are all as human beings in that level all the time, and it doesn't always serve us. So moving into a level two or level three level of listening where we're really focusing in like that homeless problem you were mentioning, like, well, I have lots of opinions about homelessness, but let me actually sit on the street corner and see how these folks are living and what's truly happening here. Who are these people? Or right. let me let me speak with a, a homeless advocate mm-hmm. and just listen to that person and what they yeah. have to say. Right. You know, and suspend my judgment or my opinion just for a while. Yeah. And then um, we talk about uh, another level of listening, which is I like to call intuitive listening. Um, and this is like what's not being said here. What not being said. Yeah. What hasn't or, been addressed. Or you get a feeling mm-hmm. like you talk about um, the conditioning of the rational analytical mind or you, you, you know, you, you, you phrased it a little bit differently earlier on, but people are disembodied. Yeah. When you, uh, you know, when I've worked with um, top executives, over the last 25 years, one of the things that have really been helpful has been taking them out in the world. Mm-hmm. So if you're if you're an, if you're a chief executive of a of a Fortune 50 company, you live with many layers between you and the world, and the people you serve. Uh, so, for instance, I had a an auto exec out for several days in somewhere in Virginia with a uh, Ford. Uh, or General Motors uh, car following basically that person for two or three days and see what that person's life is and their their family and their work life and so on. And the the vehicle that she drove was uh, old and sort of secondhand. Um, and uh, that's unusual for for an auto exec to be interested in that sort of thing. It was a it was a mess and probably also dangerous um, uh, to drive that vehicle. But for him to not just look at how much would this person pay for a car, but instead what's her world like, um, uh, taught him quite a lot of things. So, for instance, he came back and said, "She's on a budget." You know, because if you're if you're an auto exec and you make you know 15 million a year and you haven't bought a car since you started working at that company because they give you the cars and they fuel them up um, and clean them and so on, then you've never you haven't seen that world for a long long time. And one of the things she, she he realized was when they um, when when somebody has a vehicle that breaks, then they can't go on summer vacation. And and that connection was not part of the the puzzle of figuring out how much a car should be should cost, how you should finance it, how you should insure it. So the whole um, world was of, of of automobiles was set up in a way that didn't relate to this person because she's on a budget. So so kind of major insights in terms of how to structure um, the financing and the insuring of a vehicle. 
uh, is um, uh, uh, quite different if you have that perspective. It's not just about the price you pay upfront. It's not just about the lease. It's the consequences that might happen to you, the rest of your life should something go wrong. And, and that's something you can do something about. And she, he learned that. He learned that by just being in that world for a while and listening and not having any opinions about it. And what was different about that is he went out in the world to discover what was important about that or what felt different to him rather than just being told it, because that is also a way of intellectualizing it, removing it from actually observation and really understanding the scope of it. Exactly. Which is so unusual for a CEO. Because their world is spreadsheets and and you know consulting yeah. reports and mergers and acquisitions and so on, and then suddenly being in the concrete world of the actual you know person they're they're serving is so insightful and thrilling. There is this there's a great I mean maybe the greatest philosopher of the last of the 20th century called Martin Heidegger who was German German philosopher. And he had this idea, he wrote um, an essay in the 50s, I think, um, about technology. Um, And he he was a kind of a Luddite in many ways. Um, But but he said, um, the real disaster about technology is not so much technical things. It is that you end up looking at the world as if it's resources. So you look at wood, you don't look at a forest, you look at wood and wood prices and the cost of breaking down the forest and turning it, turning it into lumber that you turn into, you know, and, and the, the same with uh, you see a river, but you also see the electricity that can be extracted from the river. So you see the world, nature, the world as resources. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he said that the ultimate problem is when we see each other as resources, when we see ourselves and humans as resources. And of course, now it's called human resources, like the, the the activity of managing people is called human resources, which is seeing other people as optimizable. Um, he calls it standing reserve. So a reserve of energy and reserve of resources that you can optimize in a spreadsheet or something like that. So he was very scared, not so much of looking at nature like that way, but starting to look at ourselves as all that all we are are optimizable resources. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, if you look at our children, the way we, uh, you know, he would he would complain that you, you, you would cram more and more activities into the lives of our children in order to optimize them as if they were resources uh, and get as much out of our time and their time as possible. So that whole view of of seeing the world as an abstract thing and ending up seeing ourselves as, uh, you know, FTEs, full-time equivalents um is a is a is a dangerous thing and and he claims you know the supreme danger of our time mm. yeah mm. Now what comes up for me is you know ai the next you know the next distraction in all of this as well in terms of what's important for us as human beings to stay connected to feel like we are in it like this is our world this is our experience mm. absolutely right. Yeah, I mean AI is a is a. I followed it and I wrote a book about it five years ago uh, called Sense Making, about the differences between humans and machines, mm-hmm. um, and I still stand by that book. Um, 
even after the new developments in AI that are that are exciting. Uh, my my problem is if we if we think, you know, let's say it this way, people say the my computer is a brain. Right, that that and and a, a computer is is like a human brain, and you'll say then, well, then my brain is like a computer, mm. um, and 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 that sort of circular argument is destructive to our understanding of ourselves. Uh, that we, no, we're not computers; we're quite different from them. Um, not better or worse, just different. Um, computers are better in many many things than we are, uh, but thinking that it's the same—that's really the problem. Thinking that it's human-like intelligence, it's not human-like. Right. Um, it's something. It's something else, and it's amazing, but it's not that. So, mm-hmm. so you're right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm curious if you had something. You know, we talked about abstraction. We talked about um, human connection. And if you had something you would want the audience to try um, as a result of the research that you've done, and I'm seeing it's like a call to action almost is what I'm hearing. That wasn't, right. you didn't say that, but that's what I'm picking out of the <laughs> not said. There's some kind of call to action here. So maybe it starts with some practice or maybe it is actually a call to action. So what would you want the audience to try? So, so I think we all have the ability to pay attention um, and do it well, but it just like our bodies, we have to exercise it and we have to sort of go to a attention gym um, often and um, if not all the time, but it's a practice um, that you can, um, it's something you can get better at. And the way that I've done it with my students is to say, pick a phenomenon, a phenomenon that you care about. So that could be homelessness, for instance, that if you really have strong opinions about it, or if you really care about it, then try to go observe it. And instead of having opinions about it, having preconceived notions about it, just look and listen and pay attention to what's going on rather than you know, concluding early. Uh, it could also be more abstract things like money, so if you work in a bank, what is money? Like you could see, you, you could say there's a there's a simple answer, which is more is better than less. And you know, there's the dollar and there's the yen, but you can also say how do people experience money and how do they relate to it? Um, or it could be um there's a group of my students that looked at what is it like to be seen by others. So you could say that that can be amazing in the sense that it's a, a teacher sees a student and sees their potential, and that can be life-changing for, for a kid. Or it could be if you're a woman and you are seen at a, at a construction site and there's heavy cat calling, that's also being seen, but rather unpleasant. I've heard. So, 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 so this, so being seen is a spectrum of human emotions, but the same phenomenon. It's that someone pays attention to you and you can, you can find ways of experimenting with that and trying to figure out how does that work? What's the structure of being seen or what's the structure of the experience of money or what's the structure of not knowing where to sleep tonight? Um, and, and as that, you know, every week try to, uh, spend time, 
just describing what you see in that phenomenon, whether that's in your work life or your private life, or just for intellectual curiosity, having a practice, just like going and, you know, and running or something like that, doing that on, on an ongoing basis and, and, and focusing on describing a phenomenon that'll sharpen your senses. And it will feel, it will make you, it will gain insight, true, deep insight about a topic that might be helpful. And it's great for your work life. It's great for your relationship to that topic in general. So that would be my call to action. Yeah, thank you. I want to add to it. I don't usually do this, but I'm feeling the urge. So one of my practices around money, because money is an abstraction and it's becoming more abstract, um, where we're not even using most of us present company myself accepted uh, cash money any longer. So what I like to do is I like to use cash money because I can feel it and I can see it. And um, as a fundraiser, I got very interested in giving money away. And in in small and, and larger ways, uh, and what I love to do now is when I, even if I go in to a uh, sandwich shop or we go to this little restaurant around the corner where I have a salad, I actually like, I pay with cash and I like to give the tip in cash money and give it to the person. And as I'm doing this, I it's like an expression of gratitude. Um, so now it's less transactional and it's more my, it's a more human experience and expression of gratitude for the other person. And it really causes me to slow down and think about the money that I'm giving and the purpose in my giving it. Yeah. So that's another one for the audience to try around money that is not abstract, quite tangible, and quite fulfilling, actually, when you start to practice in this way. So anyway, yeah. that's, an that's another one. <laughs> Got some choices for everybody to try out this week. <laughs> so Christian, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It was, shall we say, definitely a deep conversation. Much appreciated. The new book is called Look. It's all about listening and observing, paying attention. We're going to link to it in the show notes. And you can pick it up anywhere Um you get books these days and all kinds of formats, I'm sure. And so we'll link to that. And is there anything else you, you want to say before we sign off, Michelle or Christian? No, thank you for inviting me. It was delightful. Yeah, great conversation. Lots and lots more to uncover here, too. So looking forward to uh, spreading the news about your book. Thank, thank you. you, Christian. Yeah. This podcast is brought to you by Fundraising Leadership. We provide unique coaching and training programs to grow nonprofit leaders. Please subscribe if you haven't already done so. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the show, you can help us continue to bring thoughtful content with a one-time contribution. This supports our production costs and keeps the show ad-free. 
please contribute today using the link in the show notes and you will receive one or more of our highly acclaimed online courses. Now go put it into practice. Curious.